Good evening. You are listening to the Year Now podcast, the official podcast of the New Zealand Skeptics. Uh, today is Thursday, the 5th of October. We normally record on a Wednesday, but uh, here we are. Uh, so joining me this evening, uh, we have Bronwyn. Hello, hello. And Mark. Hey. And we have a special guest, Tim Price, who is a work colleague of Mark. Good evening. Welcome along, Tim. Thank you. So um, we're getting close to an election. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are we feeling the stress of the election yet? No, I totally didn't realize that the uh, polls were open. <laughs> oh, oh, right. Okay. Well, I haven't voted yet, but I've got my little easy vote card. I got that in the yeah, mail. I got that but... today. Yeah, very good. Do you guys reckon that being in Wellington sort of exposes you to more sort of election kind of mania, or is it just same as everywhere else? Couldn't possibly say. I'm not in Wellington. I'm in Nelson. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, oh, where, where, oh, right. Hang on. Tim, okay. Tim was in Wellington until recently. He's he's hiding the fact that he used to live locally. He's just moved. Yeah, I'm being oh, okay. I'd, I'd say the main thing in Wellington is we have to put up with the protests. So we have to put up with every time Brian Tamaki wants to march to the Beehive, those flipping motorbikes that always accompany his protests are there. And they are loud and annoying. It's sort of a little bit awkward in my area because my region, my um, electorate sort of butts up or my neighborhood butts up against a couple of different electorates. So it's like I'm seeing all these um, billboards, but it's like, who am I actually needing to vote for? Because uh, I've seen billboards for Hannah, Hannah Tamaki and... Um, but they're not in my region. They're not in my uh, electorate. I don't. I don't get to vote for them. <laughs> yeah, I guess I have the same experience. Really, I, I when I ride my bike and go down past Westgate and I see signs for probably an electorate that's kind of a bit west Auckland more, and I'm sort of in the Upper Harbour electorate where it's a strongly, strongly blue seat as these things go. But yeah, so we've got our. Um, our mixture of uh, billboards, including the one from New Zealand Loyal. And actually, I was at an event last night where somebody was uh, making a joke about voting for New Zealand Loyal. <laughs> so it's nice to know they're, they're the butt of jokes outside of uh, sceptical circles. And you're sure it was a joke? Like, this person is not really going to vote for Liz Gunn and her conspiracy party about how the UN and the Illuminati are running New Zealand? Well, this was at a pub quiz last night, and the right. uh, the... The quiz master made the joke and everybody laughed. So I think I think it is seen more widely as a bit of a joke party. I, 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 I yelled I, out a one percent tax. <laughs> I have to say I'm impressed at the very least that enough people in a pub quiz have even heard of Liz Gunn's political party. She's obviously doing something right that you know it's not just that nobody even knows what it is. But anything's a possible quiz question, right? So you do you know current affairs is a is a quiz category. True, true. And the more obscure, the better. Mm. <laughs> but but the was... true question is, um, who's going to vote for the um, legalized cannabis party? Um, <laughs> no. No. Well, hang on. Anybody that says yes is just outing themselves as a stoner. So we're all going to say no. I mean, even though I agree with the premise, I wouldn't go and use my vote for a one-issue party. That's the problem, really, I think. I think Sorry. Craig's the stoner in this group. He just hides it very well. <laughs> sure, right. I mean, what, right. you know, there's nothing wrong with a one-issue party if it is the only important issue that you have. <laughs> yes, I want to grow my uh, cannabis and, and sell it to the locals. Yeah. 
So, Mark and Tim, you're going to talk to us about whether we should be paying a little bit extra money for our internet every month so that we can be private and never expose our personal details to anybody else in the world. <laughs> That's the theory. Although, yeah. if, you, if so, you read my article this week, you'll you'll probably come to the uh, distinct impression that I'm not in favour. <laughs> now, I was going to try and start this segment with another advert because the reason most of us will know about vpn services out there is because they're on so many damn podcasts and i thought imagine if we had an nz skeptics vpn so i asked gpt like i did for the mattress advert could it write me a a funny advert for the nz skeptics vpn it is not good content. I swear GPT is going downhill. It is cheap jokes about sheep and hobbits. Um, <laughs> and I am I am not amused. I mean, you can tell it's like, oh, I know something about New Zealand. I know two facts about New Zealand. And that is all I've got. It's, it's horrible. I'm not even going to read it out. Fair enough. Well, it'll have to be all original content then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So let's get started. So... Tim, can you give us a, a quick overview of what a VPN is? I don't mind if you go into a bit of technical detail. I think a lot of our listeners have at least some technical now. So just explaining what a v, what happens with a VPN. What's it for? How does it work? Okay, so VPN uh, stands for Virtual Private Network. It, it used to be that it was exclusively the realm of, of businesses to use VPNs for site-to-site uh, reasons over the internet or for employees dialing in from remote locations to provide some sort of security and yeah that, that was that was essentially it and so it's a it's basically a connection between you and another place where yep. it's like an encrypted tunnel so a connection's open between the two and then all the traffic that goes between the two is encrypted so nobody in the middle can spy on it um yep, and it, it's all it's all pretty safe when it's going through this tunnel right that's right yeah and so what we've ended up with now is a bunch of companies out there that are selling retail services for VPNs. So they're trying to convince everyday Joe in their home that they need to buy a VPN service uh, that will make them more secure while they're browsing the internet. And part of this is really interesting is it's almost like a side effect of a VPN, right? So so what's going on when the consumer uses a VPN and the benefits that a lot of the benefits that are advertised by the companies is basically that because the first section of your connection is encrypted through this tunnel from inside your home network, what ends up happening is rather than the IP address that shows up when you connect to something remote being the IP address of your home, it ends up being the IP address of the other end of your VPN connection. And that VPN server might be anywhere in the world. So it's kind of used a lot of the time just as an IP masking service, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the two, two of the uh, benefits that they herald uh, the loudest are that you can connect to a server, VPN server in another country, which might give you a benefit such as it unlocks content on a streaming service that you might not otherwise have access to. Uh, it's quite common for Netflix, YouTube, etc., to geolock their content to specific locations. And another benefit that they talk about is that um, online shops commonly will offer different prices to different geographic locations because of currency conversion reasons or other geopolitical reasons. So if you can make it look like you're in a different country, 
Maybe you can look like you're browsing locally from a company that sells uh, at a cheaper rate to locals than they do to international parties. Then you might be able to buy something cheaper from somebody online. So is, I've got a question. So is that would that be one legitimate way of buying cheaper airline tickets if you say had a VPN that allows you to be in the US and then were able to get airline tickets that way? I suppose so. If that if that's actually what they're doing, if if they um, are offering cheaper prices to um, customers based on their actual IP address, but I doubt that's what's going on. In that specific mm. case, there are a, there are a bunch of other tactics which I think you guys have talked about on the podcast before, about how companies like uh, Timu, for example, uh, will offer very cheap rates to get you on board, but they are tracking users um, using much more specific information than just what your IP address happens to be. Mm, sure, yeah. So one of the issues you point out in the article, so these are the legitimate uses, let's say, and we'll, we'll start with these. But one of the issues you point out with that is that when it comes to something like um, shopping and you think, oh, I'm going to go out with an IP that's not mine, maybe it'll see me as a first time buyer. And because of that, I'm going to get a better rate. What can actually happen is it might be that 200 customers are going out through that same IP. And so there's a really good chance that like 20 other people might have already been to that shop. And so any chance of like a, a, a bargain deal is long gone, right? Because presumably, yeah. like for a VPN, the server at the other end doesn't have an IP for every customer. Presumably, it focuses it just through one single IP address. Yeah, well, IP addresses are expensive, so ultimately, they're going to not—they're not going to put um, any more IP addresses on the server than they absolutely need to. So they're going to funnel as many customers through the same IP address as they can. And therefore, yes, you are going to appear to be on the same IP address as any other number of, of VPN users at that time. And this kind of goes on to you. You talked about IPv6, which has always fascinated me. You know, the idea that we were running out of IPs, what, 20 years ago or more, and they came out with a new system and then pretty much nobody's using it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um turns out that IPv6 is difficult in some respects. It's more technically uh, challenging to implement than IPv4 for sure. I actually did a uh, presentation at a conference in Australia about IPv6 and how we had successfully deployed it at one of my uh, previous employers. But it, it, IPv6 ultimately boils down to a bit of a chicken and egg scenario because you need to have content which is IPv6 enabled in order for there to be any use enabling IPv6 for a client end. And granted, there are quite a lot more IPv6 uh, content providers out there now, like uh, Google and um, uh, certain parts of YouTube. I think Facebook might have it turned on. But it, it, there's corner cases. There's corner cases like there are everywhere where, um, you know, for example, YouTube caches in New Zealand, quite a lot of them are IPv6 enabled. So you might end up with IPv4 connections to those. And it's not like we can just turn off IPv4 anyway. We're going to need, we're going to need both for the foreseeable future. And I think what you point out in the article was that actually there's a risk here for people that might think they're protected with the VPN with anything that is on IPv6. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it turns out IPv6 isn't just difficult for ISPs to do. It's difficult for VPN providers to do as well. And some of the VPN providers, which are, there's a couple of uh, VPN providers that solve the IPv6 problem by just blocking it. 
on the on the client end uh, application that you have to run on your device, they just block IPv6 entirely. But right. uh, one of the other notable IPv uh, VPN providers, sorry, um, doesn't do anything with IPv6, and instead they published an a knowledge base article on their website advising people to disable it and giving instructions on how to disable it. But if you're not aware of this issue, and I would contend that most people aren't aware that IPv6 exists, let alone whether it would be an issue for the VPN, then you might just be blissfully unaware and carrying on using it. And IPv6, the, the key part to this is that IPv6 doesn't go across your VPN tunnel. So it's it's leaked to the internet natively, and therefore so you, any you, traffic that goes across it is not encrypted. So you think you're secure, but actually for anything that um, you're connecting to an IPv6 endpoint, it ends up not going through the VPN and any use you might be getting out of that VPN is gone. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So that's interesting. Um, so the beginning of your article, you talked about how there were basically, I mean, there's lots, there seem to be lots of companies offering VPNs, but actually behind it all, there's probably just a few large companies that kind of each, I guess, have bought out smaller companies or use different brand names. Yeah, well, there seems to be the big three uh, that are doing a lot, the, the bulk of the advertising. Um, there's ExpressVPN, NordVPN, and Surfshark. There are a couple of them that are interrelated. Um, two of them are owned by the same umbrella company, um, but they claim to operate independently. And as far as I can tell, they are. But there are others. Um, there are other providers out there, but those are the big three. And the kind of claims that they're making that they're trying to hook people on, um, you mentioned a few of them and why maybe you shouldn't trust these claims. So the first one was the no log service, the idea that they're not keeping any logs and that you'll always be safe because they're not recording anything that you're visiting. And and this this is how they plan to continue operating. But you found there might be issues with that, right? Yeah, well, they, they make these claims. They, they say that they don't keep logs, um, but... I find it difficult to believe that they wouldn't be keeping logs because even for uh, from the from the point of view of an operations perspective, it would make sense to be keeping some sort of logs so that you would be able to track down problems and monitor trends over time and that sort of thing, much like ISPs do. The fact is that these uh, these three that I cited in my article, they all operate in... Um, legal uh, jurisdictions which don't require them to keep user information. However, it's entirely voluntary and we should take them at their word that they're not keeping logs if that's if that's the case, right? So none of them you've seen have been offering audited um, proof that they're not keeping logs or anything like this? No, you just haven't seen any them. evidence of that, no. It's pretty hard to prove a negative, I guess. Yeah, it is, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, notably, they all do operate in geographies which require them to comply with data privacy regulations of some sort. So one of them notably is uh, covered under the EU's GDPR regulations, and the other two are covered under um, local legislation under in the, what is it, the British Virgin Islands and Panama. So they all have local legislation, which uh, roughly covers data privacy, and that data privacy legislation entitles people to know that their data is being recorded and to ask for a copy of it. 
Okay. So related to this, you talked about ISPs and the idea that VPNs throw around at times in their advertising that you should use a VPN because you can't trust your ISP because your ISP will not only be logging the data about the websites you visit and the services that you're running that connect to the internet, but they'll also sell it to other companies. Yeah. So that was the most egregious uh, claim that they make. And given my background as an ISP builder and operator for the last couple of decades, was the thing that upset me enough to write the article. And I I can categorically say that um, ISPs don't record that level of information on a day-to-day basis. And they definitely cannot sell your data. In New Zealand and Australia, we are covered by privacy legislation, which explicitly prevents ISPs from selling user data. And in terms of what ISPs can see, we have logging that is very high level and very anonymized because we need to track traffic on our networks so that we can push traffic in various directions to better serve customers and better... um, uh, better make use of our links and that sort of stuff. So, yes, we do have some information, but we definitely don't, as a matter of course, record everything that a customer is doing. And for that matter, the even if we wanted to, we couldn't get the level of detail that uh, VPNs are claiming that we can. You know, they, they're, mm. they're saying things like, oh, well, you ISPs can, uh, can see the websites that you go to and the contents of those websites and all of the the URIs that are on those websites, all the actual like uh, the the paths on the on the on the website links, but the the matter of fact is that most traffic on the internet is encrypted with HTTPS now. The only thing that we could see if we were looking, which we're not, is the URL, not the URI part of it, just the URL. We can see DNS requests. We can see. Uh, we can take packet captures and try and decrypt data, but there's no way that you'd be able to decrypt uh, HTTPS traffic. Um, right. And make, and so this probably affordable. this probably leads on to the next point that you mentioned, which was man in the middle attacks. The idea that between one end and the other, somebody could be, uh, I guess, collecting data on in the middle, or even kind of faking being a host in the middle and serving traffic in both directions in order to listen in. But presumably, again, with HTTPS, that's pretty mm. hard to do. As you say, as soon as it's left your home network, you're pretty safe with that, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, HTTPS um, uh, is is quite safe. I mean, I won't say if it's absolutely foolproof, but it's quite safe in most cases. And the most important f- fact of the matter is that if you're in your house, where is the man in the middle supposed to be in that situation? You're They're either in your house with you, in which case you presumably know that they're there, or <laughs> they're in the ISPs in the internet somewhere, question mark. And at that point, why are we saying that VPNs can be trusted. You know, yeah. the VPN providers are saying we shouldn't trust our ISPs. Why not? Why should we trust VPN providers any more than we trust our ISPs? And then, for that matter, when your traffic leaves the VPN out on the internet somewhere and goes unencrypted, presumably over the internet from the VPN server to its destination, those people can somehow be trusted. Mm. So their argument doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay, so. 
to an extent for anonymity, you know, you're, you're popping out through this IP address that is no longer your home IP address. You're getting that and that might be useful, but there's not a lot of other use for VPNs outside of that then. Um, and I think if anything, you point out that maybe there are going to be some issues, right? Maybe there are going to be speed issues because you're just adding more complexity and more hops between you and the service you're connecting to at the other end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, for decades now, um, content providers have been pushing content closer to the user because they know that that uh, equals a better user experience. If you can get your Windows updates from a server that's just down the road from you rather than a server that's in Australia, they're going to go faster, they're going to start faster, they're going to end faster, and, and customers are going to be happier. So ISPs host content caches in their core networks all over the country, all over New Zealand and Australia. And the content caches are run by companies like Google, Akamai, Fastly, uh, Cloudflare, uh, companies that provide content to internet customers, buy spaces on these caches, put their data on there, and then customers are directed to get their downloads from those caches. And they use your home IP address and the DNS servers that you use on your ISP to determine the best cache for you to get your data from. So for a normal connection, let's say I'm streaming a video, if I'm just going out through my normal ISP, um, the service that I'm connecting to will recognize that I'm in New Zealand. It'll connect me to a data center in Auckland and I'll pull it locally. But if I'm on a VPN that makes it look like I'm coming from America, suddenly rather than me just going up from the bottom to the no top of the North Island, suddenly I'm connecting all the way out to the US and then connecting, I guess, to a service there, or worst case scenario, even coming all the way back to New Zealand for some weird reason and getting the data from here. But it's just, it's adding like a lot more distance to these things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So you, and, and distance really does matter in terms of uh, networking. Uh, distance equals latency and late latency, additional latency is bad for speed and it's bad for user experience. So I guess especially for something like gaming then, for anybody that thinks that latency is the most important thing when they're playing Halo Infinite, low latency really is what you're after. Um, and going through a VPN that's popping you out the other end of the world is not going to help much with that. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Definitely shouldn't be gaming over a VPN. <laughs> so for gaming services, again, they, they have local servers, right? So they'll have Australasian servers, they'll have Asian servers, uh, they'll have European servers, they'll have American servers. And yeah. you don't want to be ending up in another region at a, a disadvantage because uh, suddenly your ping is 200 milliseconds and everybody's got like 50 or 60. Yeah, absolutely. And and the other factor to consider might be that from an abuse perspective, if game companies are managing um, abuse by banning IP addresses, you might end up VPNing through a server which has been banned and you just can't get access to that game from that point. Craig, you're a tech guy. Have you got any questions? Uh, well, I've only ever used um, VPNs when I have worked for companies. Um, I've never actually paid money to one of these companies to have my own personal VPN. Um, so I guess the only question I would have is for every device that's using that VPN, they have to have an application on that device that basically does the work of the VPN connecting to the VPN rather than you wouldn't have a have a all the devices in your home being able to use a VPN. 
There is one one of the providers, and I don't remember which one it was, does make a claim that their VPN works on routers. So oh, you can okay. configure your router to to stand right. up the VPN and all of your home devices would therefore be uh, right would be all covered by at the same disadvantage. <laughs> yes, yeah, the same advantages and disadvantages, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Otherwise, right. most most of their refrain is that um, yeah they have they have clients for everything, so you can run mm-hmm. a client on your TV, on your phone, on your desktop PC, on you know, on anything you like. But right. the the legitimate use for VPNs that we've probably all used um, is basically I want to be able to connect into my office network and do something that's running there and isn't exposed to the internet, and I need to do that securely. And so what we'd end up doing is opening a VPN so we can end up sending our traffic inside our company's own private network. So that's kind of historically what VPNs have been used for. Yeah, and then suddenly VPNs... they're like the big consumer thing, aren't they? Yeah, and, and in a lot of cases, those VPNs will be what's called split tunnel VPNs, though. So only the traffic that needs to go to your corporate network will go over your corporate ne- right. over that VPN, and everything else will just exit your um, home internet, mm-hmm. just as usual. So one question I have more generally about ISPs. So say I was a bad guy and I was uh, surfing for, for child porn. Is it that the ISP is then recording all my traffic? that the police can then come along and say, give me access to their traffic, or would the police have to say, okay, we're interested in this particular person, Um, this is their IP address, give us your logs, and now switch on some additional logging so we can keep track of what they're doing? Yeah, so um, ISPs are not required to keep logs to that extent about customers, but they are required to provide what's called the um, telecommunications intercept and security um, capability. So this came out a few years ago and a lot of ISPs were shocked and dismayed by it because it was going to require them to do a lot of changes to the network at quite high cost. But what it essentially means is that if a law enforcement agency with a relevant warrant comes to an ISP and says, we want uh, an indis- illegal intercept on this specific customer, then there is a very short time frame that ISPs have got to comply to that request, and they have to provide what is essentially a port mirror of that customer's traffic. So okay. no, there's no retroactive uh, information required to be handed over. Uh, some ISPs may have something that's useful uh, to law enforcement and may offer that voluntarily, uh, but the letter of the law is the legal intercept requirement. So this this mirror is basically just that law enforcement then get to see a copy coming through another port on a device of all the traffic that's going to that particular customer, presumably. Yeah. So there is a um, there's a specific appliance which um, implements this legal intercept capability. It's selective in terms of uh, what it's recording and what it's mirroring. So it, it will it will record all the packets that go to a specific IP address, if that specific IP address can be can be tied to that particular customer. And that comes down to some um, algorithms which inspect uh, things like radius packets um, in the back end and go, okay, so this specific user is authenticated, it's been given this IP address, therefore I'm going to mirror this IP address for this amount of time. And all of that requirement is baked into the legal intercept 
And how does that work with HTTPS? Because presumably the that particular intercepting device isn't going to be able to decode the HTTPS traffic. No, it's sent raw. Right. So it's it's down to the police or the GCSB to decrypt that traffic if they're interested enough right. in it. To, so uh, if the to police have a s- if the police have a secret quantum computer, then they're probably okay <laughs> decrypting this, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting actually because there was some legislation which came up a while ago in Australia where lawmakers were trying to make ISPs decrypt HTTPS traffic. <laughs> oh my it was God. it was oh, largely man. seen as ridiculous. And I don't know I don't know where it went. I didn't see it pop up because New Zealand uh New Zealand law generally follows Australian law. And I haven't seen it come up in New Zealand yet. So presumably it died the death that it deserved in Australia. Okay, so for, for our for our non-technical listeners, we should actually explain that decoding HTTPS is an extremely computationally expensive thing to do, and so it's virtually not possible. Yeah, maybe a large nation state who are very willing and and are willing to pay for a large power bill might be able to do this for a particular stream. Yes, so practically, it's pretty much impossible. You would presumably have to. Um, I mean, it, it wouldn't be unusual for lawmakers to make this law and and force third parties to figure out how to implement it later. And it might be something as stupid as requiring the issuers of HTTP certificates to give a copy to ISPs so that they can use those private keys to decrypt the traffic. Oof. But that's I, daft as well. I, I'm just imagining having an intercept in the middle where when the two sides start an HTTPS conversation, as far as I understand, they negotiate the protocol they use for encryption. And if you can sit in the middle of that and convince both sides that the only protocol they're allowed to use is a horribly insecure one, presumably your job of decrypting is a little bit easier. But even then, it's it still sounds like a horrible job to do. At the point that you do that, your browser starts complaining. Quite, yes, exactly. Quite that's a what I was going to say. Yeah. Yes, I suppose so, maybe 15 years ago that would have worked, but these days Chrome, etc., are pretty good at letting you know if anything's a bit fishy, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, if, if, so you, you, just, if you sit in the middle of that conversation and decrypt and rewrite that traffic using a different SSL certificate, you might be able to do that, but the client at the end of that conversation is going to see a different SSL certificate and, not, and basically not trust it. Yeah. No, I was thinking more of just just pushing them like some SSL is like it's an evolving thing, right? The the protocols that are used, it's not just one thing. And some of the older SSL, as far as I understand, is TLS 1.0, I think is, um, you know, it's not trivial to decrypt, but it is decryptable in in a fairly quick amount of time. So Mm. I imagine if you could maybe convince both sides to drop to something that old, maybe you won't have such a hard time reading what's going between the two sides it's possible you you just have to convince uh all these people that ie6 is the cool new browser (laughs) (laughs) well historically it's been a real problem convincing anybody that ie anything or any browser from microsoft is uh is good but you know maybe now with bing connected to chat gpt they might finally have hit the jackpot i tell you what those of us who work in infrastructure They've unfortunately still got to use IE6 for some things because some really old servers with really old management cards still use ActiveX controls and Java versions that modern browsers just will not use. 
Right. So our um, canary in the coal mine, uh, Bronwyn, I've just seen her yawning, which uh, indicates <laughs> that we've talked about technical stuff for long enough. Do not pull me into this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bronwyn, for letting us know we went on too long. That's awesome. I've also been drinking a couple of glasses of wine, so I mean, I do get a little bit, you know, sleepy. Oh, oh my God. Are you all. even going to last to your segment? Are you going to be okay or are we going to have to try and wake you up? Oh, who knows? We'll find out. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. That was uh, very interesting information. I'm sure our listeners will get a lot of uh, lot of use out of that. And uh, yeah, don't go and spend money on, on a VPN. No, well, I, I, as I said much. in my conclusion to my article, know what you're buying and buy it for the right reason. Indeed. I've been having a very interesting conversation uh, via the chair email um, with a person who wanted to talk to the skeptics and find out what our um, opinions are about gender. So uh, that that was kind of interesting. So I'm I'm going to sort of cover the conversation that we had. That this person's name is Mark, and and it's not the Mark who's on the podcast. Wait, are you <laughs> sure of this? Deeply trolling me. <laughs> <laughs> Gives me ideas, though. Maybe I will in a couple of months when you've forgotten about this. <laughs> I have um, I have spoken to this person in the past. So I think the first time I spoke to him, I did a little bit of research and actually found out who he is. And I have a feeling he might have forgotten now that we that he might have revealed more about himself in the past than he is now. But anyway, he sent me an email and saying, hi, folks, with elections coming, I noticed that Luxton and Hipkins don't agree on what a woman is. They can't both be right. So I thought I should turn to you folks at Skeptics to find out who is right. Do people decide what sex they are as they grow up? Or is a woman an adult female? And what do chromosomes have to do with it? What is the truth about this? So uh, you will notice that he used the uh, name Luxton. Yeah, I I noticed this when I saw your email (laughs) response. So we weren't party to the entire conversation, but I think the committee got to see the first email and your first response. And the very first thing you did was snarkily pick up on his typo where he misspelled Luxon's name, right? Right. Well, yes. So I I, said, yes, I did. I did apply a bit of snark and I said, Wet Bank Poom said, who is this Luxton person you're talking about? Don't know of any candidates in our election with that name. Um, and then I said, it seems you're confusing sex with gender. Most simplistic ne- notions of sex turn out to be wrong in reality. And I pointed them to a science-based medicine article on uh, gender, which is which is pretty good, and talking about the science of biological sex. Yeah, so that is actually back- a really good article. I think if we can get that in the show notes, that would be good for our listeners. Yes, indeed. Um, so he came back to me um, and he said, thanks for that. I was referring to Christopher Luxton from the National Party. So, okay, he's not picked up on <laughs> the fact that I was being snarky about the fact that he got Luxon's name wrong. Anyway, he said he doesn't understand how so many young people were getting steroid hormones without a, dose, a diagnosis. And then he goes on to say he has to get a proper diagnosis to get testosterone that he needed to take based upon science and blood tests. Um, does any of that apply to teenage transgender treatment? It looks very unscientific. What is their diagnosis to qualify for hormones? If there is nothing wrong with them and they are just part of a spectrum, why do they need medical hormones? I don't think your article explained that. 
I went back with one more snarky response and said, uh, attention to detail doesn't seem to be your strong point. The national Whoa. leader's name is Luxon, not Luxton, <laughs> nevertheless. So then we sort of carried on and um, I was asking him whether he had any evidence that young people are actually getting uh, hormones without a diagnosis. Um, because as I understand it, there are some fairly uh, strict requirements uh, before they're giving these these hormones out. It's not like, uh, as we saw Brian Tamaki say, that uh, the warehouse is selling <laughs> these hormones. Yes, puberty um, blockers, the idea that they're on the shelves for anybody to buy. That was that was an interesting claim he made. Yeah. So I went on to say that some people have gender dysphoria and that their perception of how they feel mismatches their assigned birth sex or sex-related physical characteristics. In these cases, rather than be forced to live a miserable life in a body they feel discomfort with, there are options to be prescribed hormones which can alter the expression of these characteristics, especially around puberty. Some trans people will go on to have gender-affirming surgery. And I note that in recent studies, of these surgeries, they have a regret rate of around 1%. So that basically means that they surveyed people that they've done uh, gender-affirming surgery on, and they have found that the regret rate that people said, I wish I didn't have that surgery, is around 1%, which is incredibly low uh, for surgery. Uh, apparently, in all general surgery, the regret rate people have is somewhere around 20%. <laughs> so wow. that's, yeah, it, it, that is, to me, quite an indicator. Uh, he he went on to say that there are certainly a lot of opinions going down around the subject at the moment. I think it's just a passing fad. So I said, well, I'm doubtful it's a passing fad. I think it's more likely that the true rate of incidence is now being revealed as it's becoming more socially acceptable to be trans, barring the regressive attitudes of some sectors of society. Um, it's similar to lesbians and gays of decades past. Back in the 50s, the number of people that thought they knew somebody who was gay would have been small. And that's not because gay people didn't exist, but because it was not uh, socially acceptable to, to out yourself. And I said to him that the life of a trans person is hard enough. I doubt whether anyone is going to do this for a lark. Uh, so then the um, the conversation kind of uh, turned and went towards neurodivergence. Um, and he has theories about and that it's caused by vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Bronwyn, were you vaccinated? Yes. <laughs> and you're autistic? You're on the spectrum? Yeah. Oh, there we go. We've proven it. He's right. It, yeah. It's all fine. Skeptics anecdotal, should give up on this. Anecdotal evidence. Well, you know. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, as, 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 as project number of um, project participant rate of one. Well, I've been vaccinated as well. And as I've said, I think I'm a little bit neurodivergent. I did say that I think there probably has been an increase in neurodivergent people, but um, that the the spectrum has been broadened anyway. Well, I mean, um, I wouldn't say it, I wouldn't say that there's been but there's been more diagnosed. I mean, people yes. there's always been neurodivergent people. Yes, indeed. And, and sometimes you don't even need to broaden the spectrum. It's just more people are seeking out diagnostic services. Hmm. So yeah, he then went into suggesting that he had um, proof that uh, vaccines are the cause, and uh, we got into Andrew Wakefield, <laughs> and. Oh. Yeah, and, and he basically said that there were there were gut issues. So he's definitely on the Andrew Wakefield train about this. Yeah. Wakefield <laughs> what was his has proof? so what much was, to answer for. 
What was this proof? I want to know about uh, this particular Marxism lab experiments. Yeah, well, he DNA said uh, it seems it seems as he's got a lot of time on his hands. Um, it, I think it's what he's saying in his emails is he's actually trolling forums that have trans people in them. So he said he asked a trans person about the shorter lifespan for neurodivergent people, and they'd said that social stigma was the cause. There's, I mean, I, there's the, uh, there's also an aspect that um, when you look at studies of, you know, they have about 100,000, like in the 10,000 to 100,000 um, neurodivergent people for autistics, there is evidence that we um, that autistics have a lower lifespan of about 20 to 30 years. But, and the big but is there's also a lot of co-occurring conditions. So there's an increased risk of hypertension, diabetes, um, muscular and skeletal, skeletal issues. So all these other things that, yes, combined with, say, social determinants of health um, also are indications of poor health. Hmm. Don't uh, left-handed people have shorter lifespans as well? On I believe average? they do by about five years, and men are another five years. So I'm I'm ten years less than my wife. Oh, are you left-handed as well? Yeah, oh. yeah I'm, I'm left-handed oh, as know. well. Oh my <laughs> so god, Brian, are you left-handed? I'm going to be on this podcast forever. <laughs> <laughs> We're all left-handers. Oh my no, god! Roman's I'm not. a right-hander. That's why I'm going to be oh, on the oh, podcast forever. Oh, okay, yeah. right. She's not. Oh, she's I a see. woman. She's okay. right-handed. I thought you. I'm going to outlive you all. I thought you said you were going to be on it forever because you're a left-hander and you. All of us. No. Are, so, oh, no. no. Okay. I'm going to. The right. podcast will live on with me. Are you sure you're not left-handed, Bronwyn? I'm. I am sure <laughs> because I'd have a very miserable time with my broken elbow. Hang on, hang on. Let Craig mansplain to you why you're actually left-handed. You just don't realize it yet. Go, go, Craig. (laughs) No. How is your health, anyway? That's a pretty personal question. No, no, after your recent accident. Yeah, your your latest blood work, Bronwyn. How's that looking? uh... (laughs) Well, I I will tell you, I went to my fracture clinic appointment, and... Yeah, it was two after I had my x-ray, it was like two seconds. Uh well, I shouldn't say two seconds, it was like two minutes. It, the doctor was like, Okay, yeah, your elbow's still not displaced. No need to cast it. We'll see you in a month. Huh. No physio, oh, no good. nothing. It's just like, yeah, just put your elbows to your side and just try to rotate your wrists for a couple of minutes each day. Oh, That's very it. Good. No Excellent. no more pain relief. Well, I mean, very it's good. it's okay, but I mean it's not great. <laughs> So now it's a nice long call to uh, ACC to be like, can I have physio? Can you pay for my delivery of my groceries? Because that's about the cost of an Uber. <laughs> Get acupuncture <laughs> off ACC. I dare you. <laughs> There'll when, be. Yeah, it's not completely free though. I want. I, I want. Re, I want Reiki. That's what I want. I want Reiki on my hands. ACC aren't. They're paying for some crazy stuff, but they're not paying for Reiki yet. Hmm. Anyway. So um, we continued the conversation. Uh, he claimed that he was getting reports from mothers who had witnessed firsthand the immediately changes to their infants and young children following the MMR vaccine. And uh, that he, there was a, a mother of eight children who said she knew that her ninth child was badly disabled straight after being vaccinated. He asked, are these people liars? So I said, well, people are very bad at knowing what causes something can only be determined by a scientific study. Uh, and I don't think the people are liars, but they are seriously mistaken. Although I did see a very good uh, meme today, and it uh, said that uh, when you see claims that anti-vaxxers make of all the people they know who've been harmed by a vaccine, you should always multiply that number by zero. Uh, anyway, so uh, we actually did get back onto gender eventually. 
he said, maybe we don't have shared reality because I noticed that you couldn't say what a woman is, just like Chris Hipkins, who was about to lose the election for not being able to say to what a woman is. So I understand if you want to pull out of the discussion. Okay. <laughs> so I said, okay, one last reply. <laughs> you can't help yourself, can you? No, you I can't. You can't okay. help yourself. <laughs> but I thought I would give this a stab. Um, so I said, the what is a woman question is really just a gotcha question, I think, and it's meant to trap a person into having some sort of definition on the spot. Uh, I don't accept the adult human female thing as it denies reality for many people. In reality, the idea of a man or woman is a social construct. Humans are strongly bimodal in terms of sex, but not exclusively so. For the majority of people, their gender identity aligns with the sex they were assigned at birth, but for some people, their internal self-expression doesn't match up. There are also people who have ambiguous sexual, uh, physical sexual characteristics for whom the decision at birth was inappropriate. I'm sure you could comment on that, Roman. Another and podcast. Are, <laughs> yeah. And there are even those who underwent surgery at birth to correct some supposed ambiguity. I don't think the question is that important. If somebody says they're a woman, I'm happy to accept that they say they are if expressed honestly. Um, and I said, I'm sure you don't demand to inspect the genitals of every person you meet to ensure that their biological sex matches up with how they present themselves. Uh, so, yeah, the evidence shows that people allowed to live their lives as they desire are happier. Um, and perhaps he should ask himself why he's so concerned about this, why is gender so important to him? Why can't people just be allowed to live their lives as they desire? How does it affect somebody? How does it affect him how somebody else chooses to live their lives? And one final thing, he emailed me back today and he said, it's just that my mum was at Albert Park in Auckland to hear people speak about women's rights and a mob of 2,000 protesters turned up and caused a riot, regardless of police being right there. My mum couldn't get away fast enough. She was pushed over and trampled on and kicked by men in dresses while the crowd cheered. My mum is not stupid and she knows that politicians and police colluded to arrange that mob violence. She won't go out alone now because she doesn't trust the police and I don't think she will ever vote Labour again. I suppose you will say it's her fault for being there, but there are plenty of others who were roughed up. So I understand why people uh, now think that transgender women are mentally ill men. The female to male are no better. I can accept people being different, but not when they treat people like that. If that is the rainbow folks' idea of being kind, I can see trouble ahead. <laughs> so um, my final response to him was, I called BS about on your story about your mum going to Albert Park. And this is where I introduced um, the information that I had about him. I said, you're a 65-year-old man, so your mum must be in her late 70s, at least probably in her 80s. Does she live in Auckland? You're down in Nelson, I believe. <laughs> Oh, oh, the Trump card. Okay. <laughs> what? Okay. So th this is the information you said you had before about him from previous conversations. Yes. How did he respond to this? Or did he not well, respond? He hasn't responded yet. Okay. But yeah, so I know that he is 65 years old because I've found out information about him in the past. Uh, and yes, I've done the maths. He's 65 years old. So his mother needs to be at least in her late 70s, early 80s at least so 
I just can't see this happening. I think this is a made-up story. <laughs> you, you said that he himself admitted he likes trolling, so um, maybe Indeed. maybe this is just another one of those things. He's so happy to lie in order to try and win an argument. Yeah, this might just be yeah. something he does. Honestly, I'm I'm not sure whether to say I'm proud of you for carrying on a conversation like this or whether I just think you're banging your head against a brick wall. But I guess the main thing is, and we talked about this earlier, if you can get an article out of it for the newsletter, if we can at least let other people read something interesting and useful, yeah. like you're never going to change his mind, right? Oh, but if no, other people no, can learn something, then then that's great. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and and I I find it a useful exercise in clarifying my own thinking as to how to respond to these sorts of uh, arguments. So it'll be interesting to see whether I get any response after I told him that he's telling me lies. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's a bold move though, calling him out like that. Well, I have to. I'm I'm going to be interested to hear what he replies, if anything. Yes, indeed. Roman, you're going to tell us about an autism pure, are you? When I originally when I originally wrote the article, it was with a mind to write about this not an autism cure, uh, an autism scam cure. Uh, but it ended up as I was going down all these little rabbit holes. The story was far more interesting and had a far deeper connection to New Zealand than I anticipated. But it was more so surrounded around the people who had worked around the autism cure. But even then, the autism cure wasn't the most important thing. It was how what we call what this protein that I'm going to talk about, how it was used for cancer as well. Because, I mean, you know, if you have something that cures cancer, you can make a lot of money saying that's going to cure a lot of other things. So in the most recent newsletter, I had my part two of the Wham Bam Autism Scan series. And I was talking about what's called the GC protein derived macrophage activating factor. And it's basically a vitamin D binding protein. You know, there's some studies about it. Um, how effective it is, is it really clear? Around the late 90s, mid 2000s, a Japanese man who was working in the US published a bunch of papers under his own Socrates Center. But no one knew that this was a made up center that he was running out of his home. He just went and published these articles and this fantastic claim that this protein was really effective at curing, you know, several different types of cancer amongst a study group of 16 people, caught some attention. Fortunately, he was able to get someone to buy him out. But once he got bought out, there were a couple of other companies that obviously popped up overnight, because when you have one scam, you beget other scams. And you don't necessarily want to get lawyers involved, because if you try to go after another scammer, well, you could be revealed as having a scam yourself, as these things go. And this is where we start getting the stuff about autism. So the Japanese man is um, Nabutu Yamamoto. He ends up selling his information on how to synthetically create this particular protein, what's called the GCMAF or the GIF-MAF. I'll just call it the MAF protein for short. Um, Hang on, is and, that and, GIF-MAF or GIF-MAF? Well, it's a G <laughs> GC. So I mean, uh, or the vitamin D binding protein. Uh, but what happened is that this man in Guernsey or Guernsey, I can't pronounce it. Guernsey? It's in it's the Guernsey UK. or Jersey? Guernsey. Guernsey. David Noakes, he ended up, yeah, for somehow getting the money to start manufacturing um, this protein for himself. And this is where we start seeing these claims about, yep, it can cure autism. He started publishing his own papers. And then he ended up sort of having this whole industry that sort of almost popped up between 2013 to 2014, 2015, making thousands of dollars telling people that, yep, come to my clinic in Switzerland. 
um, pay a couple of grand, a couple of grand each time for, you know, for treatment. Plus you're paying for your accommodation separately. Allegedly about maybe five or six people died. Whether they died because of the blood product is unclear. I haven't been able to find any further investigation into that. More likely these were patients who were probably very, very late in their cancer journey, probably terminal anyway. So here they are trying to, you know, this is last, this is a last stitch attempt anyways, but potentially by taking this unproven cure, untested cure, unauthorized, unregulated product, they probably met their demise a lot sooner. But again, haven't been able to find any further follow-up um, about this. And what was really sad is actually there's quite a few give a littles and stuffed and um, New Zealand Herald pieces from around that time of cancer sufferers in New Zealand who were trying to fundraise the thousands of dollars needed to go to Switzerland and access this cure for cancer. Mm. They're always gutting to see all the give a littles where people are like, I've I've got terminal cancer, but I just need one hundred and twenty thousand dollars because there's a shaman in Mexico who Mm. says he can cure me. It's it's so gutting. We've talked to give a little about it. Um, Mm -hmm. they understand the problem, but say that, you know, it's people's choice if -hmm. they want to go for an unproven therapy. As far as I'm concerned, they just shouldn't be enabling this kind of nonsense because Mm -hmm. the people that profit in the end are the scammers and give a little Mm -hmm. a helping. Not only are they helping, but they take a bit of money out of it as well. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they, they take their slice of the pie. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's the promise that, okay, this is, this could possibly cure you. These are people who've probably gotten very, you know, short lifespan prognosis, terminal prognosis, and they're being promised something. it's not like, hey, look, I'm fundraising for my last ditch bucket list trip. They are going here find, trying to find a cure. And there was one story of a woman who went to Thailand where this protein was offered as a cure. And she was already quite sick. She was, it sounded like from the story that her aunt told, was close to dying. And they still gave her this cure, even when she was, you know, dealing with like sort of these late stage infections in her face and the cancer was clearly spreading into her, into her brain. David Noakes, who runs it, who ran this um, company called Immunobiotech, who was sort of making all these claims, running this clinic, he does eventually get arrested. Um, he spent some j- jail time in the UK and then he pleaded guilty and is now spending jail time in France, along with a few of the scientists who are working on this um, product with him. They were charged under, you know, promoting and distributing a fake medication. Because what, one of the things that was interesting that got them in trouble in the UK in the first place is because GCMAF was a human blood product. And no one's quite clear about where this blood, pro- what blood product it was being produced from, because you know our, our bodies actually make this protein on its own. In fact, but you can also get it from bovine colostrum. So there's a there was actually a potential market in New Zealand. You know, just use this bovine colostrum from New Zealand, and you make it into a yogurt, which was what. And there is GCMAF yogurt that's still for sale in New Zealand and elsewhere in the world, because that's how you can take that um, protein orally. I would have thought that the UK's concerns about uh, mad cow disease would have made that particularly egregious over mm. there. Well, I mean, you know, don't even need to go that far because, you know, there was claims made by a by David Noakes' personal assistant that he was the source of the, you know, it was his blood that they were getting the, the wow. protein from. And when they looked, when they did a tour of the, well, the, when they did the investigation and a raid of the facilities, they're like, this is actually not sanitary. This could be contaminated blood products. They seized about 10,000 vials, which ended up being like a million dollars worth of uh, product. Immunobiotech, you know, the websites are still up. Um, everything about their dietary protocol and, you know, how many injections you need to take of this stuff today, that's all still accessible all those original research even the stuff that's been retracted all accessible 
what's interesting is that despite all these people who have either died, such as um, James Bradstreet, who is particularly the person pushing the autism angle of the whole um, protein being effective, we have a guy named Marco um, Ruggiero. Now, Marco Ruggiero is a biochemist. Um, he seems to, you know, he's had some involvement with the Italian military. He seems to have had some medical training. He was actually a, a, affiliated with the University of Florence. And it seems that he has a massive byline or side hustle in terms of creating these supplements. It'll be the same bottle, and every two or three years, he remarkets a supplement as something else. So for the first couple of goes, it was called the Clotho formula or Immortalis. So it was, again, similar to the whole protocol that David Noakes was putting together. It was take these supplements, these oral supplements, several times a day, have, eat this, eat a ketogenic diet, drink this sort of fluid, have this yogurt, and you will have this extended lifespan. Now, here's a New Zealand side of the story. And this is where we get Jamie Lee Ross and Billy TK. There is a company, uh, well, it's sort of been operating out of um, Eden Terrace. There was the, um, um, there's a clinic out in Newtown in Eden Terrace that's been run by a man named Michael Kelly for a long, long time. And he was an agent for Immunobiotech. And I think his company was initially called Immunobiotech back in the early 2000s. You know, it was operating for it about a year. He was offering these particular David Noakes products. Then David Noakes go to jail. That all shuts down. What we know about Michael Kelly, he sort of is known within media. He's known within some sectors of New Zealand alternative culture. He has a reputation of being a crystal healer. He offers a lot of immunotherapies and alternative medicine therapies. And he somehow is still connected with Marco Ruggiero and does sell Marco Ruggiero's products. Of Marco Ruggiero's current products is something called Immuno. What is Immuno? Well, it's a GCMAF product where you can either inject it you can put it on your face. There is a face cream as well as a whole dietary protocol. So again, you're getting all that, all these claim, all these products that claim to cure cancer, deal with disease, still being sold in New Zealand, but not as a medication, as a um, cosmeceutical or a nutraceutical. A couple of years ago, Jamie Lee Ross got into the news, and this is around the time of COVID, for peddling anti-5G supplements. This was a new offering by Michael Ruggiero, Marco Ruggiero. And yeah, um, both. And this was a partnership between Michael Kelly and Jamie Lee Ross. And it was, and you know, when you look at the pictures, it's basically, it looks like the same product, same packaging, all the other supplements that Marco was trying to sell before. Fast forward another couple of years, and you end up hearing about, we end up hearing news about Billy TK going to jail or going to court, you know, and he's since been charged. Um, He's been found guilty. So the story on that end is, so back in 2020, there was a fundraiser for um, Advance NZ, and this was hosted by Michael Kelly. What, However the conversation came about, Michael gave Billy TK some money. Michael understood, believed that that money was meant to be for billboards. Billy TK believed otherwise. That first envelope had $10,000 worth of cash. A little later on, like a few days or a couple of weeks, another envelope of cash was given um, from Michael Kelly to Billy TK, and that contained five grand, maybe eight grand. The amount, um, sometimes the story changes. Then Michael Kelly is looking at the uh, list of donors and he finds out, hey, my name's not on this list. So he uh, apparently goes off and re re raises a concern with the Electoral Commission. And that's why Billy TK 
was in court for quite a while. I don't. Please. Maybe there are sectors of society where this is how it's done. But I think for me, if I was a politician and somebody handed me an envelope full of cash, I'd figure both of us would understand that that was an under the table thing and that this was not a legitimate campaign donation. Surely, surely people have other ways of transferring money if it's legitimate. Well, his partner um, named Jenny Lieb, who, according to the news articles, was on video from uh, Vanuatu. She was saying, like, you know, I don't know what this is. We don't know who these people are. This is not we don't we don't give big amounts of cash like this to just anybody. And, you know, Michael was trying to say, like, I'm not a smart man. I'm just a working class guy. And I'm like, you've been peddling like these really, really expensive supplements for years. You have you have a major CEO, Tony Falkenstein, who bought your company, you know, bought your website company where he's still distributing the all these immuno biotech products or I shouldn't say immuno biotech. Marco Ruggiero's immuno product line so they're still for sale so he must you know he's not i mean you could maybe say you grew up working class but you're not working class now interestingly we uh, received an email from somebody about another product that uh, billy tk has been promoting called nanosoma um so this is yet another product that Mm. has sort of magical claims and (laughs) there's so many of them but yeah, so it's interesting that Michael Kelly over here is just, uh, you know, he's he's selling dodgy cures and then mm. he gets involved with dodgy politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, how does he think that his name in any way is clean? He, he just looks dirty as anything. Yeah, but I mean, you know, his name is so it's Michael Kelly, you know, unless someone unless the journalist is making the connection deliberately. And I was lucky enough to find those connections that someone had done that for me in those, you know, at least in those two stuffed articles or Herald articles. You know, wouldn't you know, Michael Kelly is a really, really common name for me. In the aftermath of what we've talked about in the last podcast episode about the therapeutic products bill, one of the big advertisements they have for this immuno product is that it's manufactured in a MedSafe audited facility. Yeah, because it'll be manufactured as a supplement, not as a medicine. And MedSafe will just be checking that there's no rat droppings on the floor and Mm. that, you know, that the place is clean. They're not nothing to do with efficacy of the product. It's just making sure they're not going to be killing anybody with um, bad manufacturing processes. (laughs) But um, it seems that there is um, trademarks. Trademarks have been registered in Vanuatu. um, So potentially that's where the facility is. So this brings us back to the same as the VPNs. Basically, Mm. just register your company in some weird country on the other side of the planet where uh, you're probably legally safe because you're so far away. Mm. Well, well, Mark, uh, geography lesson, Vanuatu isn't actually that far away from us. (laughs) Physically, but, you know, I'm thinking more legally and there's a large body of water there. Mm. It's far Mm. enough. Mm. Right. I mean, there's also lots of um, drug manufacturing companies. So they're not big ones, but you know, you can do um, license or contract uh, manufacturing for medications. I think there's even like a medical cannabis company that might be that might have just recently or is going to start building a production facility over there as well, in in return for some other funding and some other financial support that they're going to give the uh, Vanuatu government. But you know, again, it goes back to here is this product. Maybe it's not advertised as the cancer cure, autism cure explicitly in new zealand anymore it doesn't take too much to go look at singapore or go find websites where this product is being offered and you're finding those cures again you know finding those medical claims again 
And this is what makes it, the changes to the therapeutic products bill really disappointing. You know, we are selling, these products are being sold in New Zealand and being distributed to vulnerable people in vulnerable, in probably in more vulnerable countries and being manufactured by our trade partners. Yeah. Because and our, our laws are toothless. Certainly yeah. our yeah. old law, the Medicines Act was, uh, was not doing its job. So, you know, we really had a hope that with this, this new law that maybe we'd have a positive change. And in the end, it's probably not going to be, it's probably just mm. going to open the floodgates by whitelisting a whole bunch of ineffective products that people are going to be able to sell and make therapeutic claims about, which is horrible. Mm. Well, they don't even have to be making the therapeutic claims in New Zealand if you can just jump on the web and find an international website that is making dodgy claims about the product. Yep. It's yeah. depressing. We're going backwards in some ways. Yes, there's plenty of work for us to do. So we shouldn't go taking that product then. No, I wouldn't recommend it. You're, you're better off taking cod liver oil, <laughs> just as effective. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Didn't that come up? So the, um, you linked in your article to a Radio New Zealand piece that had a quote from me, basically lamenting how bad the legislation is and how mm. even the legislation we have, nobody's effectively policing it. Um, and there was a counterpoint from a reporter from Stuff. Radio New Zealand decided to ask another reporter what they thought. And Charlie Mitchell said that many natural remedies do work, including fish oils and manuka honey. Now, I don't know where he got his information from, but that is not the truth. Mm. That is not reality. Well, I mean, you're not the only um, skeptic committee member that I came, whose name I came across. Um, Dan was quoted in a couple of articles, particularly when we're looking at the cancer um, people who had cancer who were trying to access the, the overseas treatments right. um, Dan, yes. got, Dan got quoted in a couple of in a couple of in his other roles so nice mm. you know behind the scenes we've actually been trying to fight this for quite a while and the government yeah. dropped the rope <laughs> i guess one thing that people can do would be to go to a conference um later on this year <laughs> and talk oh, about it there that that is the worst segue i think i've ever heard from you thank you craig <laughs> yeah, so the New Zealand Skeptics Conference in Dunedin is coming up on the weekend of the 24th to the 26th of November, and it'll be a great time. We've got lots of fun things planned. Friday night is going to start with a uh, sceptical quiz. Um, I do believe, Mark, that you might be being going to be roped in to help produce some of the questions for the quiz, since you should That's be so good at it. Yes, I, I do enjoy them, and I do have quite a wide range of knowledge of weirdness within skepticism. Something actually, I, I didn't realize I was going to be asked to help, but something I had a thought about yesterday in the car was I wonder how well GPT would do these ways for writing pub quizzes and even like something like a skeptical quiz. The hardest one I've done, I did a humanist quiz once and humanism is such a narrow topic that coming out with like 50 or 60 questions was a real tough ask. At least skepticism is quite broad, but I wonder if GPT would do okay. And yeah, I, I might give it a try and then see mm -hmm. if we can just finesse the questions it comes up with. Well, I mean, you kind yeah. of already have a category pre-written. Um, a couple of years ago, you gave us that, was it Isaac Newton or Galileo quiz? Oh. And the only person who got 10 out of 10 was, um, if it wasn't James, and it was certainly Alexander. I think it, maybe John MacDonald, he knew a lot about um, Isaac Newton. It was for, yeah, it was for, oh, was it Darwin? Maybe it was Newton, but I think it was Darwin. Maybe. Uh, it could have been Darwin. Yeah, it was Darwin it was Day. Darwin but Darwin Day, I did a yeah. quiz, yeah. 
But anyway, yes, anyway, the conference, sorry, the conference we're way coming up. up. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll, okay, so a quiz on Friday. What about the rest of the weekend? Anything else? Well, well, we've got a whole bunch of really interesting speakers, a lot of, lot of uh, local speakers, but we've also got uh, Susan Gerbic and uh, Melanie Tresick King coming to speak with us. Um, we've also got, uh, I think, Lindley Hood, who uh, wrote uh, A City Possessed. Oh, that'll uh, be good about, about Peter the, Ellis. Uh, the Christchurch Civic Crash case. And also Lindley's, Lindley's son, David Hood, is going to be speaking. Um, and he's been doing some good work around uh, keeping track of the COVID statistics in New Zealand. So that'll be fun. And then, of course, on the Saturday night, we will be having our gala dinner. Um, where, will we, where we will be presenting the annual Skeptics Awards. Um, so, yes, be on the lookout for who's going to win the Bent Spoon this year. No spoiler, but oh, my goodness. No. If, if what we're thinking of happens, this is going to be an interesting year. Uh, now is the time to buy your tickets. Uh, we're running the early bird until just after Labor Weekend. Uh, so go to conference.skeptics.nz, check it all out, and uh, book your tickets, and we hope to see you there. It's going to be a fun time. And what else have we got coming up around the country? First, starting off in Wellington this Friday, October 6th, 6 p.m., we have our regular meetup at Intercontinental Hotel inside the hotel in the uh, hotel lounge. It's a great time. Come meet some local skeptics, meet Mark, um, have some great drinks, lovely food. It's always a good time. I'm, I'm not a tourist attraction, but thank you. <laughs> um, and then following Pretty sad up, one if you were. <laughs> oh. Mark's a local celebrity. <laughs> uh, and, and then following up on Thursday, October the 12th at 6.30 p.m., we have the science-based healthcare activism in the pub. That'll be at the Fork and Brewer. Come in with some complaints on your mind. And if you submit your first ASA complaint, you will get a free beer. Nice. Uh, and then for Dunedin, they will have their next Skeptics in the Pub meeting also on October 12th at 6 p.m. at Umbrellas Kitchen and Bar. Very good. We just had our uh, Skeptics in the Pub in Auckland uh, this past Tuesday. Oh, new venue, uh, was it this time? Uh, yes, we tried out a new venue called the Oak Room. Uh, which which was quite nice and comfortable. Uh, we all sat around a table with some nice uh, plush leather uh, couches. The only unfortunate side of it was that also in the venue was a group doing painting lessons, oh, <laughs> fine what? art painting. And what? why uh, is was that a, a problem? Woman- well, the instructor was wearing a headset mic and giving instructions, which were clearly audible uh, down our end of the room. But anyway, you should take your own touched. painting materials and you can just take part for free. You don't even have to pay. <laughs> they were they were copying a um, a fairly well-known painting. Um, and as we wandered out at the end, we sort of looked and, and all of the canvases looked vaguely familiar. And they looked vaguely similar to the, the target. So, yeah, I think they've done an okay job. Art critic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. So when's your next Auckland meeting? Well, it's meant to be uh, on the first Tuesday in November, but we might actually make it a different day because normally we would have it on Tuesday the 7th of November, but arriving into Auckland on the 9th of November is Melanie, who's coming to our conference. And so we're planning on actually doing a special event that night um, on the 9th of November, 
and uh, Melanie will be there and um, we can have a nice chat with her and uh, no doubt her husband as well. And, uh, nice. So she arrives from the US and you immediately shove her into a social event. Love it. Well, she she's arriving in the morning. Okay. Uh, 9 a.m. So she'll have Got a day, day to, get over to recover. It. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully that'll come off. And I'm um, not sure yet whether it'll be at the old uh, Dyson Fork or whether we'll be doing that at the Oak Room as well. But uh, we'll have another podcast before then where we can announce that. Awesome. So we're done. Look I think at that. so. I think, right I think that's time. everything. I, I don't think we've got any other events coming up. No. Um, I guess if you're a member of the New Zealand Skeptics, then you should come along to the conference because we'll be having the AGM during the conference as well. Highlight of the weekend. Yes, dealing with highlight. finances yes. and membership and, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, but if you're a non-member, you can still come to the conference. We actually want you to come to the conference and you Indeed. just get a free hour to do whatever you want in Dunedin. <laughs> Yes, we're done this time. Go. Excellent. You have been listening to the Year Now podcast. If you'd like to give us some feedback, you can send us an email to podcast at newsletter. No. Oh, no. I got that wrong. <laughs> that went horribly wrong. Try again. <laughs> you can send an email to podcast at skeptics.nz or you can send it to newsletter at skeptics.nz as well. That'll get to us. Or news at skeptics.nz. They all go to the same nice. place. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Anything at skeptics.nz should get to us eventually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, thank you very much for having me. See you all next time. Bye. Adios. Bye. Bye. Bye.